Hello, George here again. Welcome to part two of our special on polling. In part one, we chatted about how polling works, what's reliable and what's not. Whereas in part two, we're going to be having a discussion with Josh about the year's battlegrounds for Labour. This is Wales, Scotland, London and England. We recorded this before Richard Lennon resigned, cheers Richard, and before a new Welsh barometer poll dropped which showed a substantial drop for Labour. So. If you think why we're not talking about these aspects and why we're acting as if Richard Lennon's still in power, it's because we recorded this before regional politics decided to throw a few spanners at us. Regardless, I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed making it. Thank you. So moving on to the elections that we are going to have, uh, I think we should start really with the the most probably complex one and, just, and the one that will maybe the most surprising and that I think is Wales. Mm. Is there are there any predictions you'd like to make about Wales? Well, I have a lot of thoughts about Wales. <laughs> um, the polling so far, it's I mean, I think we've kind of referred to it earlier. It's been very erratic. So, you know, um, there's been so many times in Wales in the last few years where the Conservatives inched ahead, but they've never been ahead at any election time. Uh, I think the closest they've got to Labour was 2019 with all five points behind and flipped a bunch of seats. But still uh now i think the most recent polls put them about 10 to 15 points behind like 13 points behind or something um mm. and i mean my prediction into the welsh parliament is that labor will hold on it will definitely be the main governing party it's touch and go i think whether they get a majority uh it's worth noting they currently don't actually have a majority anyway uh they're i think one seat out and so they have kirsty williams uh from the lib dems as their education uh not i think it's their education minister um it is I think the tricky thing about Wales is that actually what determines whether Labour get a majority or not is actually probably more about what happens on the right wing. So in 2016, mm. you had a split right wing vote, if you want to call it a right wing vote. In Wales, I know the UKIP vote is a lot of like ex-Labour vote, so it might be a bit more complicated than that. But put it this way, there was a big UKIP vote as well as a kind of they won seven ams i think it was yeah yeah, yeah they won quite they, they immediately celebrated by cooing the leader and replacing them with neil <laughs> hamilton <laughs> yes. but you know they've, they've now this time around there's going to be reform who are i don't know if they'll get the same base in wales because if you think about the ukip base in wales like i said it's kind of a lot of ex-labor and so mm. red ukip had quite an appeal but reform seems very much pitched to the right so I don't, it's quite anti It's interesting so. that you, you raise that point because it's probably the, the point I find most interesting about Wales is that it's redder than red in many parts, but you do get this very resilient, as you point out, parties that you would traditionally consider to be right wing. Mm. They are quite strong in Wales. I think yep. when UKIP collapsed everywhere else, the decline was slower in Wales. It certainly wasn't, you know, we're not talking... Yeah a bloom or a, a great growth in the vote share they were still going down but it was much more um yeah. it was slower and the reform party yeah. i think has had representation in the welsh uh, senate i think it is now i'm not entirely sure but the polling in wales always is kinder to that kind of party yeah it is. it is and i think that's because and now this is getting really geeky my uh, from what i've seen there seems to be quite a lot of uh the kind of what we might call left authoritarian voter kind of socially conservative people mm. who are not you know they don't like immigrants they're quite like you might call them unwoke or whatever um they will not vote labor these days largely because 
you know, that's sort of out of step with the social liberalism of, of Labour, but they also don't quite look, they don't like the Conservatives. So pretty much people who voted for the Brexit party in 2019, there were a lot of them in Wales, I think more than anywhere else. I think it was maybe five or 6% and they only got 2% nationally. So there was quite a big Brexit party vote there. And I think there'll probably continue to be a demand for that kind of like populist right wing, but not like Thatcherite right wing, like reform, no, I think. No. That's why I think reform is a bit of an unknown to me because they're pitching themselves on the economic right. They're kind of anti-lockdown. They're very like pro, uh, I mean, I don't know if you heard their sort of, um, the, the, the sort of presentation they did earlier in the week, but they were definitely not, they weren't really sort of like, talking points which would appeal to this sort of vote uh, a breakaway from the kind of farage ukip and the, the brexit party we saw in 2019 yeah that was brexit in 2019 the people who voted for the brexit party were mainly people who liked boris johnson but hated the conservatives yeah because we saw in not... barnsley very, yeah, very exactly they did well in labor i mean they only stood in labor seats so we can't really test that for the conservatives no, yeah, but, but it's very much the kind of voter who's like never tory but I love Brexit, you know, um, and there's a lot of that kind of voter in Wales. But the, the, the thing I was going to come back to on that is because of the split vote in 2016, it meant the right collectively didn't get that many seats because, uh, you know, first past the post still matters under the additional member system, which which Wales has. And so they left lost a lot of places, the Conservatives, which they could have won with that UKIP support. Um, if the right unite nights under the Conservatives, Labour will do a lot worse because they'll lose mm. a lot of those first post post contests. And so even if Labour's share of the vote increases, if the Conservative vote increases by like by quite a bit more, which it could because of that UKIP vote collapse, which could happen, uh, you know, that they could be left without a majority despite an increased vote share um, or even losing seats. But um, on the other hand, if, you know, abolish the Welsh abolish the Welsh Assembly Party and, you know, reform and all of these other right-wing sort of splinter groups gain quite a bit of the vote individually, they won't win seats or many seats uh, between them, but they will split the vote and let Labour in, um, you know, and, and they're doing better in the polling at the moment than they were in 2016. So there's definitely the opportunity for them to get a majority, but I really think it rests more on what goes on there on the right than actually, you know, whether they go up by five or 7% in in their um, kind of vote share i can't remember the exact numbers they got last time but they're definitely polling a fair bit better now than they were then if at the minute obviously reform pitched themselves as this anti-lockdown party mm. I, I would have thought if that's their pitch they might struggle a bit more to gain ground because there was this undercurrent that wales did vote for it and brexit party's appeal was you know we'll do what the majority of voters mm. in this country said they wanted whereas if you look at the data for the polling of how they feel about the lockdown and about mark drayford's handling of the covid crisis he's not really dipped like the, the welsh government despite you know the firebreak lockdown not working the way they intended they've not had a massive dip in popularity which makes me think that maybe reform might struggle to make the same dents into the right-wing vote if that's their entire you know thing yeah i mean i think you might uh have missed the most recent polling actually in wales i'm i oh, think I? oh dear yeah like i remember seeing an article i can't i, can't, I don't think i looked through it in detail um but basically there was some polling of coronavirus in wales um recently um i'm just trying to find the polling kind of i'm gonna speak, search for but, it now as well um, they, um, did, they did see a big reduction in their approval rating i think in december um as cases kind of surge but I, I can't find the uh i'm trying to find the article but um oh i found yeah, it, it on, on itv it fell by like 20 points or something i don't know if that's going to be reversed but either way even despite that 
you know, Drakeford didn't have much of a reputation before COVID and it did surge massively. Um, and I think we're going to have to wait for the next Welsh Barometer poll to see uh, yeah. whether or not the recent decline has will sustain and whether or not it will affect Labour's polling or whether or not it's more just like a sort of, you know, because, uh, even though their polling has gone down, it was still like 50-50 on like approval for COVID, whereas before it was like a massive majority in favour of their approach. But the, the thing that didn't change that struck me was would you prefer the Welsh approach or the UK approach? And they still massively, massively preferred the Welsh approach. So then it was a case of, yeah, you've kind of messed this up a little bit, but also you're still way preferable than the alternative. So I'm not sure if that will actually affect the polling all that much. Mark especially... Drakeford is a very, as you say, he's a relatively unknown character. Mm-hmm. Back in 2016, when we had Carwin Jones, he was, um, it was, it was easier to portray as this out of touch sort of, snobby mm. politician i think that played quite nicely into into what ukip and the the right wing in wales were trying to do mark drakeford hasn't got that same air about him no that might as you say uh make it harder for mark drakeford to be susceptible to the same tactics um but i think we should probably i was going to say wales as sad as it is a lovely country very pretty country uh, because Wales has been spoken about an awful lot and we have got potentially for the fate of the union a very important election yes. to yes. the north of the border to talk about. Uh, Scotland is probably it, it, it continues I think uh, in my own personal opinion to be one of the most disappointing theatres in British politics uh, it's a very aggressive theatre it's a particularly nasty one for a lot of activists on the ground on both sides it should be said and it's very tense at the moment so do you think the SNP will get their majority if the elections go ahead we still don't know when they're going to be but do you think the SNP will get their majority I, I would bet on it I would say they probably will um the polling is just so good for them and I think if they do not get the majority, it will be by the skin of their teeth. I mean, obviously, everything I'm saying now, including about Wales, is kind of contingent on me thinking that the current polling is not going to change dramatically. And I don't see how it will because they've kind of settled into a trend over the last few months. Um, I think there's more risk for Labour in Scotland, in Wales, than there is in Scotland. In Scotland, just I think the best chance that uh, uh, Labour have in Scotland is just um, not not losing many or any seats they're not going to make advances I don't think but in Scotland I think Nicola Sturgeon is almost she's kind of impervious to damage at this point I just there's nothing you can do to affect her political reputation just um you know she, she's played her hand very very well indeed I haven't I've kept as close an eye on this as some people have um but you know it you can't she seems untouchable, <laughs> frankly. Something else to um, add, as well as about Scotland, is as you say, uh, if she misses out on the majority, it'd be by a very narrow margin. Yeah. Um, the Green Party in Scotland, separate entity party yes. of England and Wales, is pro-independence. It is uh, not, sh- you know, it's not shy about that fact either. So, you know, a handful of seats, the the independence movement still has power in Scotland. So it's not just a case of the SNP, as you pointed out, even if they even if they fall short of the majority, which will feel like a victory, I think, for, for a lot of unionists, uh, there's still the Greens to watch out for. In terms of Nicola Sturgeon being untouchable, we have very recently had crawl out of wherever he has been. Mm. And he's, he's laid some allegations against Nicola Sturgeon. 
Uh, do you think that they could have any sort of toll on her standing? Um, I'm sceptical. I mean, it could for the true believers, but in the same way, and I don't want to make bring comparisons into this, but in the same way that I think Keir Starmer suspending Jeremy Corbyn damaged his re- reputation, i.e. not very much and only with a specific group of people. Um, I think, you know... Alex Salmond was never liked in Scotland, to be honest. I think in many ways, he was one of the barriers to them becoming popular. It was only after that, uh, that Alex Salmond stood down that um, the SNP surged. And obviously you can say that was because that he stood down after the independence referendum, but you know, Nicola Sturgeon, I think she was a fresh face and she was quite appealing. She was much less kind of aggressive and hostile. I think she just, like the things that make her popular now are I think still the key to her popularity like even back in 2015 uh you know she's just very likable and kind of agreeable uh and uh, she seems very honest and genuine uh and i think people kind of warm to her and alex Salmon was one of those politicians who just was not liked uh and couldn't get as, i mean they did win obviously the scottish parliament back in 2011 i think or was it 2007 i think it was 2007 wasn't it yes. but um either way um, majority was 2011 i think i think they got a was it coalition well, went, in 2007? Yeah, but they were never in kind of in a dominant position in Westminster polling until after the independence referendum. And um, Alex Salmond, Nicola Sturgeon's reputation is just miles and miles above Alex Salmond's ultimately. Um, and so it's only going to be people, people in the SNP who are really factional and sort of on Salmond's side who are going to sort of really take any kind of, uh, take anything away from that. I just don't think... I think people in Scotland probably, I don't haven't looked at this in detail, but they will probably instinctively take Nicola Sturgeon's side. And also they probably think the allegations against Alex Salmond probably have some credibility attached to them. So uh, I don't see how this hurts her really, apart from, like I say, among that very small group of people who are very big enthusiasts of Alex Salmond, which is not very many people. Well, to move from one politician, uh, you've talked about, you know, potentially having issues with a small base. Uh, let's go to the complete opposite, who is only liked by a small base and is pretty much either unknown or unpopular. Richard Leonard, um, Scottish Labour. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, uh, obviously at the minute, it's kind of the battle to maybe stay in third place um, or perhaps not even move down a further tier. Just, I mean, there's, there's been so many conversations within like left-wing circles about what is to be done with Scottish Labour. Um, which is why I'm going to potentially, you know, doom you forever by asking you what is to be done with Scottish Labour? What what chance do they have? Like, is this pretty much mm. just hold what they can until the political winds change or are they in this position forever now? So I'm speaking from a London perspective. I literally live in London, so I'm going to sound very annoying to say this. But I, what I would say is that from a UK-wide perspective, Labour should not prioritise Scotland because ultimately... No matter what Labour does, I think, in Scotland, it's going to face a very, very tough challenge. And whatever strategy it takes is very unlikely to yield substantial gains. Probably its best hope is to gain a few seats in the central belt in 2024, whenever the next election is. I think their strategy for Labour as a whole should be to put England and Wales front and centre and just hope for the best in Scotland. That obviously puts Scotland in a tricky position um, because... You know, but I, I, ultimately, though, Richard Leonard is—I think—if you—if you're going to ask me the question of does he need to go, is he being—is he a good leader? Is he a bad leader? How is he going to affect their fortunes? Uh, I think it's pretty clear that he's not especially uh, liked, or to be honest, it's not even that. It's say he's not really known. He's been there for three and a half years, and I—I I like the guy. I think he's a decent chap, but he's 
almost objectively ineffective. There's no evidence to say he's had any impact at all. He barely registers. Uh, he's just irrelevant in, in, in policy. I don't know why it is, uh, but he just has a zero impact. And um, I don't know what it is that Wales, that they have to do up in Scotland in order to fix their situation. I certainly don't think there's going to be an easy answer in terms of, ah, you just got to endorse independence or not. I think it's neither here nor there. I, certain, I think if you go too far in the sort of entertaining independence direction you'll just be abandoned by the few voters you have who don't want independence but then half of them are kind of keen on the idea i don't but i don't think you're going to dip massively into the smp base just by saying some nicer words about independence because you know if you want independence you've got the smp who can actually deliver it and actually believe in it you of course uh, sabotage the english yeah exactly and that's campaign. what i mean like you shouldn't. That's what this is. What I mean in terms of saying you shouldn't base your UK-wide strategy around Scotland. Um, I don't, I'm not. A, I don't buy into the idea that Labour can ever form a government without winning seats in Scotland because no. the SNP will never facilitate a Tory government. It will make life difficult, but to get your foot in the door, I, I don't think. I put it this way: I think the best chance of Labour recovering in Scotland is to win an election in England and Wales, and then do things to show Scotland that actually it's not rubbish being in the union. I don't want to say the only reason why independence is a movement is because of Tory governments, but it's clearly driving your median voter in Scotland towards independence. I think there would be a, still be a big movement under a Labour government, but I think it would go from being a majority, maybe 55% at the moment, to being more like the 45% we saw before. Well, we we saw in two years a huge, yeah, well, I exactly. say huge, we, the margins in Scotland are always, I'm sure you know, better than, uh, than I do, the margins in Scotland and an awful lot of swing seats are... Yeah. <laughs> Excruciatingly small, but yeah. the shift from 2017 to 2019 was Enormous. noticeable and, in many ways, remarkable. The the lack of popularity Boris Johnson has yeah. in Scotland is is ever present, and moreover, the the lack of sort of sort of drive of the Conservatives in Scotland now that Ruth Davidson stepped aside, they've lost that figure. Yep, and you've got to have the local leadership in Scotland too. Which is something that Labour haven't had really. They've had no. They had I can't. I, they've had Richard Leonard. Uh, they had Kezia Dugdale, and I'm not entirely sure if her tenure ended before, during, or after she buggered off to Australia to be on I'm a Celebrity. And then before that, was it? Uh, I can't remember the, his name. Is it Jim? Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> it's been a while. It, it, that's that's part of the problem. It's sad, yeah. very sadly, I do not remember this gentleman's name, but he was leader in 2015 when they got absolutely wiped out yes, by the SNP. It, it's been a it's been a kind of categorical failure of leadership for the last yeah. three leaders. Uh, absolutely. Is there anyone waiting in the wings who can reverse that? Well, this is the thing. I I think I've said this before. I think replacing Richard Leonard is in the long term a necessary but far far from sufficient thing for Labour's recovery I mean it's clearly he's not having an impact you need someone with some gravitas because um, no one's paying attention to him but at the same time the anyone who thinks replacing him is going to change Labour's fortunes alone is far if, if, you know just delusional and I think there's a similar problem quite a lot in politics people think I'll oh, replace the leader and it fixes everything and then, yeah it, that's there couldn't be more untrue in this instance I think um what was the word? Now we're Starmer, aren't we? Yeah, well, I mean, I have many thoughts on that, but... <laughs> I'm afraid we, we're not going to go into that on this podcast. No, let not, but, um, but definitely. No. 
Well, you've, you meant, well, I think it was Rob who mentioned Boris Johnson. So shall we turn to one of his former jobs? Um, mayorships. Um, there is a couple of mayors up for grabs this year. This year. That you're still going to go ahead this year. Well, it's all of them, isn't it? Aye. Yeah, it's more the... than a couple, George. I think it's all of them. Well, aye, exactly. Including a few new ones. That does not make more than a couple a bad sentence, though, because it's still factually accurate. Now, um, <laughs> let's start off with the one which I think is the shortest conversation we're going to have. Uh, Sadiq Khan, will he win? Yes. Yep, no, that's that's it. There that's, we go. Yeah, that's it. Does Sean? I mean, I mean, the only real contest like question for that is, will he win solely on the first ballot, or is it going to be you know down to second preference votes? I would bet on him winning on the first ballot. To be honest, I mean, it really depends on how you know the campaign goes towards the end. Um, but Richard, I mean, Sean Bailey, he's you know, there's nothing going for him. Uh, he's fighting in a city which is moving towards Labour anyway um, and with a Labour leader now who quite appeals to the kind of vote, Tory voter in London there's quite a lot of Conservative Remainers in London who don't, uh, who have a lot of people who switched to the Lib Dems in 2019 he appeals very well to those voters as well um, and Sadiq Khan appeals to those sort of voters as well you know you're kind of traditional, not even traditional not at all traditional actually, you're more it, I don't know how to describe it but the kind of Romani, socially liberal, competent type politics you get with Sadiq Khan and Keir Starmer it appeals to a similar bunch of people, and it just fits it London very, sort of very the Cameron, well. David Cameron, yeah, a Tory voter. It, it kind of, yeah, and like those people, uh, there's so many of them in London, particularly in kind of southwest London, where there's a couple of Lib Dem seats. Um, Sean Bailey, if he win, if he if he managed to get within twenty points of. Sadiq Khan, I think he's <laughs> that would be successful for him. The more interesting thing will be to see uh, which of the smaller parties does better. So in the, the Greens in have the often... assembly election for London because London has mm. uh, the benefit that no other, I believe, uh, mayoral situation in the in England has, and that is a, an assembly to accompany it. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I how think does the... actually, actually how does polling for the assembly work? Do they do it or yeah? Is it, so YouGov does surveys uh, of this. I don't know if anyone else has. I think there might have been one or two other posters, but YouGov does them most regularly. Uh, there's a London series with Queen Mary University, I think. Um, I, I'm not sure they've done one for a little while now, but um, they do poll that. I mean, it's, it's a low... It is generally a low sort of turnout election, like 30 40% tops. Um, but that's the same for mayor also. It's all at the same time. Um, I don't think the results are likely to be much different to how people vote on the mayor. Uh, interestingly, in 2016, Sadiq Khan actually ran below Labour. So he was actually less popular than Labour, which is interesting. I think now he'll probably be the opposite. I think he'll probably do yeah. better than Labour. Um, but either way, if the question is, does Labour retain a majority in the London Assembly? I mean, it hasn't actually got a majority. I think it's got 12 at the moment out of 25. But effectively, it's a majority. So you've got two Greens, a Lib Dem, uh, you know, it's progressive majority on there. Um, but I think they will probably make gains. Um, they'll certainly hold on to what they have. The yeah, I assume it's or... goodbye to David Curtin and... Uh, oh yeah, the, uh, the is it Peter Whittle, the other UKIP oh, victor yeah. in twenty sixteen? I'm not sure if they are they even still part of UKIP, but either There's way, almost certainly. I'm fairly sure David <laughs> Curtin's founded his own party at this point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm following it, but I don't think you'll get any right wing splinter parties gaining any seats. No reform? Do you think reform might sneak in? 
I just don't think they would. Um, uh, because they got, a, they got a, one representative in the EU elections, which is the most in recent. London, yeah. But that was at a time when the Conservatives were historically low. Yeah, that's um, true. And the right wing vote was kind of split between those two parties almost equally. So, in fact, in that election, actually, it was obviously three times more for the Brexit party. So, I, I don't think you'll be seeing any. Uh, I'd be surprised if you did, it would be just one and they would get in by the skin of their teeth on the list. Yeah. Vote, but, um, I, I think it's going to probably be Greens retaining a couple of their seats. Um, I think they've got two at the moment. Lib Dems, will, they've got one at the moment. They might go up to two. Who knows? Uh, I mean, we, the Labour is dominating in London, essentially, and that's not going to change. Everything else is just sort of a margin of error around that. So to move in then into kind of the final area where the rest of the mayor battles will be occurring and also the mm. actual council elections, we then kind of move into everywhere in England apart from London. Um, what are your kind of assumptions or predictions as to what's going to happen when these elections eventually take place? Oh, um, so I haven't been following all of the mayor elections particularly well. Um, I think... Is it West Yorkshire is one of the big ones, isn't it? Yes, um, that's the um, new one, yeah. Yeah. So just I would... to give you, um, just before we go in, just before we talk about the new ones, uh, there are a series of current ones which are very obscure because yes. Cambridgeshire has one and I just, it, that's barely ever spoken about. No. Northumberland has one and it's never spoken about. Tees Valley has one and I, I've never heard that mentioned. The one that I've never, oh, ever, 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 ever heard mentioned ever is the West of England one. West of England uh, has got yes. a mayor. It does. That covers Bristol. I think they did try to do something with a dam of some sort. That is the most I can tell you about it. Liverpool has one. South Yorkshire obviously has one and the West Midlands has one. Um, and sorry, oh. I apologise for interrupting. I just wanted to point out that when we're talking about this, is we're talking about something which is so obscure that people who are interested in politics don't know they exist yes yeah which yeah. is which is why it's equally a very excruciating question for me to just kind of generally ask like what what's your assumption will happen because a lot of these um places i mean it might be the exception for places like you know uh, manchester where the uh, or south yorkshire where the mayors have already been in place and they've kind of developed a bit of personal vote but for a lot of these new established mayors they're going to be banking a lot on how labor does nationally aren't they yeah, I mean, so I have a couple of thoughts on the Tees Valley one and the West Midlands one. Um, so Tees Valley, I don't know if you guys are familiar, that's, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, Ben Houchen. Um, so uh, the last time these mayor elections took place was obviously 2017 in May, which was before the big Corbyn surge. So Labour were trailing 10, 20 points in the polls at that point. And so mm. I look at these with absolute frustration because I'm like, these Conservatives got in by the thinnest of margins just because of how badly Labour happened to be doing at that particular time. And so what I worry about with these elections is even though Ben Houchen won by two points in the Tea Valley mayoral election, 51 to 49 against his Labour opponent, Sue Jeffrey, I think this time Labour should be taking that one, for example, easily if we're on any kind of trajectory to kind of not completely flop at the next general election but at the same time one thing i worry about these i don't know how popular these mayors are and if they have like a local profile because there might well be a sort of separation between how people vote in terms of their party affiliation and their the, and who they'll vote for mayor like if they've been a good mayor they might vote for them anyway do you know what i mean even if they're a conservative so, because they've got this foothold and because they won the first time like an incumbency bonus basically like in america where you've got sort of 
a couple of Republican governors who get voted in by massive majorities in very, very blue states. I what fear that kind of effect. I don't know if Andy Street in uh, the West Midlands is particularly popular or not, but I, I think he does have a profile there. He only won by one point in 2017. And really, those are two mayoral elections which definitely should be going Labour this time. But there's that bit of uncertainty in me, which is a bit like, hang on, what if they're just popular mayors now and they just want to re-elect them, even if they are voting Labour in these areas? So I find these difficult to predict because they're not about parties, they're about individuals. And you see the same thing in London, where I think Sadiq Khan is going to outperform Labour. Um, but it's just a bit of an uncertainty. you kind of got to watch that space. That's my take anyway. And then um, the actual council elections themselves then, um, what do you personally see? Because I've seen predictions of Labour comfortably getting, you know, a, a couple of hundred seats off of the back of this because these are seats we've not contested since, as you point out, that um, May 2017 wipeout. Exactly. Or, or are we going to see the opposite? Are we going to see a Boris bounce because of the roll of the vaccines? Like, what, what, what's your... Yeah. All depends on timing, doesn't it? Because yeah. polls bounce around. And like I say, those May 2017 ones, had they been held on the same day as the general election, would have looked completely, completely different. Um, so uh, the with the sort of general England local elections, um, if Labour isn't gaining hundreds of seats overall, then it's had a very bad night. Um, obviously the 20 remember you've got two sets of elections here you've got the 2017 ones which were when labor was at its complete nadir and then you have the 2016 ones the year before which was supposed to happen last year where i think the two parties were kind of tied but the geographical the kind of electoral geography has changed massively since then you know since 2016 you've had labor surge a lot of the south which it kind of occurred for the first time really in the 2017 general election and also um kind of in north where you've had a big surge for the Conservatives since uh, to, to really crudely generalise. Remember, those 2016 local elections took place before Brexit did. So you're thinking, we're thinking a hell of a long time ago now. Um, so it's going to be really difficult to interpret those elections because you've got half of them in a completely different set of circumstances to um, each other as well as to now. Um, so it's going to be a nightmare, really. You'll probably have results where you'll have some kind of northern uh, or, or like, oh God, I sound like a southern, just saying northern all the time. But like, you know, you know, you have some kind of hashtag, like inverted commas, red wall uh, seats where Labour's been in decline, serial, like serious decline, where you might actually see them doing worse than even 2016. But then you'll have other places where you see Labour surging 20, 30, like 20 points even. So it's going to be really difficult to interpret. But overall, um, it really depends on the national environment. Uh, if there is a vaccine boost or whatever for the government around the time these elections take place, then you know they will reap the benefit of that and we won't gain so much. Um, but if the national environment stays the same as it is at the moment, so the polls are kind of deadlocked, we should see massive gains from the 2017 um, a kind of uh, series of, of elections and probably more patchy gains from 2016. Um, but it's honestly gonna be so difficult to interpret. Mm. Well, so I've spoken about is. how difficult it is lo with locals before George and I, uh, and it's it, well, it won't be exactly a year. It'll be a, a couple of months off a year, I think, probably around about March last year. We heard that uh, in the local elections, Sheffield was was going to be a wipeout for Labour and stuff like that. So it's going to be very difficult to predict, as you say. Sheffield, Sheffield, yeah. They, they, it was an article from. I say around about March last year, I think, that said that there was going to be a bit of a bloodbath in Sheffield. So mm. was, such was the degree of the Tory 
Uh, That's incredible. Yeah. Well, we, we this was, um, now. Well, this, this <laughs> is what these delayed elections were meant to be, weren't they? Um, because yeah. they, they were going to be scheduled for just about a month after Keir Starmer got elected, so before he had any yeah. chance to make any impression whatsoever. So um, yep. it, it was almost like he was going to receive a bloody nose because of Corbyn and uh, the whole yeah. legacy of that. But here we are. So this is why it's so exciting. Now, we've done a lot of talking about um, elections and polls and everything else. So we're going to end this final question by asking you what is probably the hardest question of the whole podcast, which we ask everyone, which is uh, (laughs) the speciality question. So you've used all of your knowledge in a hypothetical scenario of polls and what to do, which cross tables to avoid to ensure that you gain a 650-seat majority. Uh, You've even managed to bend electoral law so you can get elected into Northern Ireland. Fantastic. Um, Brilliant. Yeah, you've been elected by, you know, by in the Labour Party, in your own party, whatever you want. Um, but you've just got only enough time to pass one piece of policy before you're then either ousted by your shadow cabinet or you're then swept out of power because you gambled it all in a snap election days after you won another one. So the question is, if you could just have time to pass one piece of policy, be it reform something, ban something, bring in some new policy, reinforce something that's been a bit outdated, what would you pick and why? This will sound like a complete cop-out answer, but I would actually introduce rep- proportional representation. Um, I'm sure you've all heard the arguments for and against it, but I mean, my astonishing 650-seat majority wouldn't last very long. Um, my personal view is that would ensure that I could probably get back in sometime soon. Oh, so interesting. So you're basically, your policy is to undo the voting system that got you into power and then to try it out in a snap election the very next day. I like it. I like it. Um, so you implement proportional representation across all. Uh, would this be uh, Dahon, STV? What would you go for? Probably uh, the same system they use for um, kind of Holyrood and for Welsh Parliament. So the mixed member proportional kind of system. I, that's my favourite for PR. I just think it's quite, uh, it gives a good balance between proportionality and uh, sort of um, the need for that constituency link. But I mean, we've probably had these debates a million, million times in the Labour Party. But I mean, I've, I'm just personally one of those people who's barely convinced that uh, it's uh, the lesser evil. And we keep trying our luck every time and losing um, at least will be able. And, and also just one thing that really annoys me looking at all of these polls is the obsession we need to have with voters in certain locations we have to make a certain type of appeal so that we can win in lee and so then we can win in mansfield and places like that where it fundamentally changes our entire approach because we have to basically say this group of voters don't matter because they'll vote for us anyway we have to pitch to these voters proportional representation completely changes the game in terms of political campaigning because it means you can pitch to whatever base you want and just choose the proportion of population you want to appeal to. Labour will never inevitably lose vote share. But if you want it to be this socially liberal party, which I think the members want it to be, um, it would be able to do that and let other parties pick up elsewhere to try and form a coalition. I think that's one thing people often don't talk about with PR. Um, it's very much overlooked that the fact that because of first past the post, we have to, well, at least political analysts say and there is evidence for it that we have to pitch towards socially conservative left-wing voters, um, such as those who are very common in the so-called red wall. But that's well, my take. 
Well, Josh, with your take sealed and your one policy in place, uh, we've unfortunately run out of your term in the hypothetical parliament, and we've also <laughs> run out of uh, time on the podcast. Um, now, if people would love to find some of your lovely takes, um, where can we find your social media lately? What is your Twitter um, account? Um, my Twitter is at jmagosh, uh, spelled how it sounds, J-M-A-O-G-O-S-H. Uh, that's my Twitter. That's basically the only place I talk about politics most of the time. I just bung it all on there. I promise I'm more fun than my Twitter suggests, but <laughs> my Twitter is very like OTT on the sort of uh, sort of politics uh, polling kind of side. So if you were interested in any of the things I've just been talking about, you'll probably like my feed. It's it's a bit, uh, it's, it's for the geeks, basically. I, I refer to Josh's takes on polling as basically the gold standard. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I generally, whenever like a poll comes out showing like a marginal labor dip or lead or something, I'm like, right, don't get excited or disappointed. Wait until he tweets about it, then we'll see. Um, equally, you also referenced an Owen Winters article, which I'm going to leave in the description for any uh, curious mm. listeners um, down there. Now, um, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It has been tremendous to have you on to talk about everything to do with polling. We are probably all polled out now. Yes, I imagine so. Hi. Now, if you want to follow Red Rose Reporting to find more excellent content like this, you can find us on Twitter at Red Reporting or simply search Red Rose Reporting on Facebook. Equally, if you would like to give us a review if you're listening via the Apple podcast system or, you know, some of the other lesser known ones, that would be much appreciated. If you have any questions for the podcast whatsoever, such as you want to come on or you want to ask a specific question about the way we conduct the podcast, you can simply message the podcast on those social media links i've mentioned thank you for listening thank you for attending as a co-host rob i think it's all right thank you very much for having me and again thank you for listening goodbye and there we have it you now know how to read polls what to ignore about them and a rough idea of what to expect in 2021 uh, that is what to expect in january 2021 by march this could be a completely different picture this format is part of Red Rose Reporting's rebrand, an attempt to catch up to the left-wingers and even the debated podcast, even if it means that my Alan Partridge personality still comes through. This is why we brought Rob on to try and smooth out their edge. We'll be back again soon with more content. For now though, stay safe and keep waiting for the Salvation Poll.